0: Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. Joel 1, all right? Joel 1 starts off this idea that a locust plague has just gone through uh, the people of God, but it wasn't just natural, it was supernatural. And here's the thing. The book of Joel comes right after the book of Hosea. And we're going to be in, we're in a reading plan, but we're in the minor prophets. And most of us, when we hear the word minor prophets, we think less important. They're minor because they're short. Some of you are thinking like, I wish you were a minor prophet, but I don't, shh, get it? Short, okay. Okay. Uh, But these 12 books, really, they all diagnose the problem. And it's all the same problem. Usually, it's like you're abusing the poor. You're not sacrificing right in the temple. You're not loving God. You don't care about his presence. Turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back. You get amazing pictures. The book of Hosea should floor us. I mean, it should make us weep. The picture is this. A loving, caring, faithful husband that holds his wife, who he knows is going to cheat. And she knows she's going to cheat. And he still loves her. That's God for you. So there's no flavor of sin in here. There's no mistake in here that can't be undone by the love of God. And there's a lie we believe. Like, I don't care if you were at Brick Street till right now. That you're on crack right now. You're like, what? Jesus can save you. I don't care if you were promiscuous all night. I don't care if you've been through five husbands. I don't care. The gospel of Jesus Christ can save and redeem anything. There is nothing that cannot be redeemed. And so when we look at the book of Hosea, oh my gosh, God holds me close knowing that I'm going to cheat on him tomorrow. God holds you close and goes, I love you and I'm pursuing you even knowing you're going to run away from him at some point in time in your life. You will fail in your life. Praise God for the book of Hosea joel is the exact same book it's the exact same book the love of god to woo a people's heart back to a back to a father but we don't read it that way we read it as wrath and there's some locusts and we're like what's a locust it's a really armored grasshopper that's it it's about three inches long and there's a whole lot of them all right like just picture the sky blackening and like that's their wings okay And you're like, what is that? It's a bunch of insects you don't want, okay? And so this minor prophet, he lays out, hey, I'm going to diagnose your problem. And once again, they only have one problem. But Joel 1, verse 4, what the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. So what has happened in the people's lives is a locust plague happened. And you can go on the Google and type in locust plague, and there's been some modern ones, and you'll get some pretty cool pictures. It's actually, you're like, well, the Bible is true. Yeah, it really can happen. And what it is, it's flying locust armored grasshoppers, and a lot of them, and they come in, and they plant eggs immediately. And I'm not talking like a couple. I'm talking like little cone-shaped little mud holes full of 100-plus eggs. Oh, and, and like a, a little square yard, there's about 70,000 eggs. Wait about two weeks. See what happens. Well, millions of locusts are coming up out of the ground. And they can't jump or fly yet, so they just walk across, across the ground eating everything. And I'm, when I say everything, I mean like the bark off of trees. It looks like Armageddon. Well, then they learn we can hop. So then they hop to the higher vegetation and they eat all of that. Then they're like, we can fly. And they fly and everything is dead. And I mean, literally, if you just type in pictures of locust plague, it looks like everything's been burned almost. It's all dead. And once that's all gone, they end up in the houses. They end up trying to eat your clothes. They're everywhere. And Joel uses this picture that they had just watched going, that's an illustration And it's a warning. And so the illustration is this. Like that plague of locusts, there is a devastating power to sin. And it starts off real small. It starts off with, oh, that won't be too bad. I'll just lie on my taxes. But then that rolls into a life of dishonesty, which then affects a whole heart and life. And then you're cheating on your wife because you can lie so well. started off small. And then it grows. You ever met a kid? They become teenagers. And then those teenagers, they become college students. And you know, they just keeps growing. And same thing with sin. Sin matures. It grows from a very small thing to a very out-of-control thing that decimates a life. And some of you, you're reaping the benefits of that right now. You're reaping the benefits of choosing little, small pet sins. And now it's running your life and destroying a lot of things. And there's good news because God's going to come in through Joel and go, I can restore all that. I can restore. I can make all that new. Do you want me to? And then there's this warning of that illustration. He says, It's not about the locusts, people of God. That's to get your attention. That's to call your attention back to God, to make you not relying on your food, but to relying on the Lord. But the warning is if you don't repent, the Babylonians will come in like those locusts and they will out, just run herd over you and they do and they do and so really my questions for now are he prophesies there's these locusts God's using them to get his people's attention does God still do stuff like that does God still do stuff like that maybe some of you are feeling some of that you're like I got some locusts well let's let's talk about why would God do that now, when we talk about wrath and we talk about hell, those are words we don't use in the church anymore, and I don't know why. Sin is very real. Hell is very real. Jesus talked about it. So let's, let's actually look to a guy that I really like to read because he takes big, deep topics and makes them for dumb guys like me, I do understand them. So C.S. Lewis, everyone knows that name because we're in church, wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and he said this, sin is like a cancer. It never stops growing and we live forever. There's a lot of things that wouldn't be worth worrying about if they only grew in us for 70 or 80 years. But what does it look like for that temper and that jealousy to grow in you unabated for a million years? Hell is precisely the technical technical term for what it would be. Now, a couple moments in that quote, you're probably like, what? You will live forever, either with God or apart from him. And the cool thing is, is that Jesus Christ died that you might live with him forever. But what you have to do first is repent of your sin and believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. You're like, and anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. So why would God send locusts? Because ultimately God doesn't destroy, sin does. Sin destroys you. Sin is killing you. The lack of love for God will end up being the love of the world and the love of yourself, and then ultimately, hell. And we don't like to talk like that, but some of you, this is happening with you right now, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to save up all this money, and then it just feels like there's a bottomless hole at the bottom of your bank account. Some of you are like, oh, i get a new car, and then you wreck it immediately, and you're like, God, why? Maybe to get your attention. Maybe to free you from the things that you think will actually satisfy, but they won't. The testimony of, I think, a lot of people in this church is, I tried everything the world offered, and none of it satisfied me. And then I found Jesus, and he satisfied my soul. That's the testimony of most people in this church. Not most. I think all of us should have that testimony. Regardless if you have a wild kid testimony or not, your testimony is this, God satisfied me in a way that the world could not. And then this is what God says in verse 12 of chapter 2. So he tells them, there's these locusts, and this is what this warning is, come back to me. And then God says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Now, this kind of repentance only flows from a place of love. Only. Only. Because here's what I know. I've been caught in sin a few times in my life. I am a dumb young man. So when that happens, there's two kinds of repentance that are formed in me. The first kind always fades real quick. And it's because I got caught, so there's a consequence. And I don't like it because I feel ooey and guilty. So then I do a willpower driven repentance God, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. What always happens in that scenario? I do it again, I feel guilty. Satan humbles me with shame because it wasn't actually rooted in a love for God. And I think the reason a lot of us can't repent effectively is because we don't actually love God. We were never told to love God. We were told to believe in him. But God is looking for lovers, sons and daughters that love him, that are his friends, that really When I choose to walk in sin, what I'm doing is I'm acting like Hosea's wife. And God has pledged himself to me and saved me. And when I sin, when I walk in what I wasn't created to walk in, what I'm doing is I'm hurting him. If Anna cheats on me, guys, I'm going to hurt. It's going to look like anger, but it's actually hurt. Does that make sense? And with God, we are one with him, the Bible says, one in Christ, He and us, us in him. We are united with him. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly place. Like, this is the reality of the gospel, that Jesus wants lovers, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Who's walking with them? God is. The tabernacle and the temple, where it's, where it's nothing to do with sacrifices, it was about God dwelling in the midst of his people. The reason that it's a tragedy, the exile happens is because the spirit of God goes out from the temple. So God's power and presence aren't there anymore and they know it. And they weep and they go, oh no. When Jesus shows up on the earth and he goes, I'm Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. God with us. Like right here, here he is. The kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus is standing there. And then he says, it's better that I go to heaven and send the helper, the Holy Spirit, because it won't be God just with you or around you or far, but in you, in you. And this is the weight of the new covenant. This is the weight of the church, the age of the church, not the age of the prophets, the age of the church. And so if we don't learn to love God, we'll just keep ripping garments. And this is what they did. Oh, I sinned. <laughs> Woe is me. Better sit in some sackcloth and ashes, rub some ashes on my face, and make show everybody, posture to everyone, but not God, that I don't like my sin. You all know how to act when you mess up. You all know what you're supposed to do. And God goes, stop ripping your garments and tear your heart. Y'all ever been in love? Y'all ever had a broken heart? You're like, I mean, if you've ever been in middle school, you had a broken heart. You know, when you folded that note and you're like, yes or no, will you go out with me? And she checked no, you're like, oh. broken, right? Some of you are like, I'm not in middle school and I still have a broken heart right now. That is where, we are lovers of God. We love him. He first loved us with a love that is like Hosea with a sinful wife. And so when we look at repentance as just a, oh, I got to do my steps so I can do due diligence so I can appease the Lord, he already paid every payment for my sin and even cleansed my conscience. And so when I walk in sin, I'm hurting the heart of someone I want to love more than anyone else on the planet. Do you talk to God like that? Do you think of God like that? He's describing that repentance from a broken heart because all the words are with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Mourn and tear your hearts, not your garments. So lovers mourn. Lovers mourn for each other. So if your, your spouse is going through a rough time, I hope you cry with her, man. I hope we learn to be a weeping, mourning people again and then it's not a shameful thing. I've been in too many hospital rooms weeping with people in the last couple of years to know that Jesus loves tears. They don't scare him away. And so when I look at this verse, it's the Lord going, yet even now. And some of you you've made a deal with God. God, you couldn't use me because of all of I did. Yet even now. So he's a fully aware of the closet that you keep the skeletons in that you don't show anywhere. God knows. And yet, even now, with all that you've done, I finger quoted that, all that you've done, God says, I want you to return to me with all your heart. I want your heart. I want your heart. I want who you are i want your love i want you free in me i want to run with in a loving relationship with you. i want to live the rest of life next to you in you with the holy spirit i want this this is what god is saying and the reason like i said we can't repent is because we don't love him and then he connects it to fasting now a lot of christian church doesn't know how to fast we think it's kind of weird why would i not eat it's not because we do things. Some of us use fasting as a weapon. And I would warn you that you don't fast to make God do anything. Good luck with that. Make him do something. Do it. Make him do something. You, my kids can't even make me do anything. You know what I mean? Like, Dad, give me a Coke. Get yourself a Coke. Can't even make me... So I can't make God do anything. And when we get in our little human brains, I'll stop eating because A plus B equals new car. Fasting plus prayer equals God does what I want. But what Joel is saying is, if now you'll rend your heart and you'll give up, even like you'll fast and you'll go, God, I don't want it. I want you. That's what he wants them to do. I want you. So maybe... Here's what I'll say. Maybe some of you need to fast this week. Now, some of you do not because you'll pass out at the bank and then you'll be like, my pastor told me not to eat. Some of you need to be wise. Wisdom's a real thing in the Bible and in life, all right? Some of you need to not pick up your phone all week. What? You're already, t- already tweaking out, <laughs> huh? Some of you need to not watch TV for four hours every night and choose the Lord and you're like that's it that's it the heart of fasting is God I will put down food which I need to live to choose the thing that will ultimately lead me to life you so maybe you need to fast this week and if you're in this room and you when I was like how much do you want the presence of God and you're like eh, you need to fast you need to create a spiritual hunger in you that goes, I hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the kingdom of God and the things of God. And I'm going to purposely put to death the things of earth in me. So I think God's presence and power throw, flow, like come through a repentance that comes out of love for him. Do you love him? And a better question is that, do you know his love for you? The most powerful moments of my life is when the revelation of the love of God for me hit my life. I was more free in those moments. I'm almost gonna cry right now. The love of God for you is immense. Now, I have kids and I love them. Now, if I multiply that to a point, I can't even, like the love of God for you. And if you just stop, like stop running around in the muck, stop running around like you're not loved and come into his goodness and go, God, I want you more than anything. I believe you, anybody, anybody in this room, and I'm not talking like high Christian, low Christian, everyone likes to be like, well, there's these anointing. No, all of you could walk in the power, anointing, and all the things that I walk in, or anybody walks in. It's available to anyone. And so God's presence flows through that. But most often, we don't wanna do the work of solemn assembly. We don't wanna do the the sombering work of repentance. We don't wanna sit and even look or even, don't even talk to me about sin, pastor. Why? It's destroying you and it's cutting you off from this closeness with God that you were made for. And so even Joel says, return to the Lord, verse 13, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Return to him. Why return to God? Why even, I actually, do not even look at you anymore. Let's look at who God is. What is he? He is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. The slowest to anger I have ever known. I'm quick to anger. Jeremiah, testify. I get, I get caught. I mean, I just get, I'll pop off quick. Not God. He has been so slow with me. And I'm a rockhead. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding. You know what that is? That's like a barrel of love, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. We return to God because of who he is, and you can return to God because He who he is. A loving father that has provided everything you need to be free from whatever binds you today. Now, how important is this? So go to chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. I promise I'll stop talking at some point. It just won't be in the next 20 minutes. Okay. How important is this act of solemn assembly and calling off and repenting it says blow the trumpet in zion declare a holy fast call a sacred assembly gather the people consecrate the assembly bring together the elders gather the children those nursing at the breast let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Now, how important is it? He goes so far as to say, if a bridegroom, if they're on their honeymoon, call them back. All I want you to know is newlyweds, they're not stopping what they're doing for a lot. You get that? Okay, cool. If if a mom's nursing a baby, bring her in here. Get all the people together and go, there's a holy God who's worth more than we're giving him, and if we don't have him, we don't have anything. So it's that important. Stop everything. Let the priests weep. Let the people weep. Let us get serious about our sin that we might see the holiness of God and the movement of God so the nations will stop saying, where is their God? Guess what the nation is saying right now? Where is their God? I hear it all the time. If your God's so strong, where is he? So when are the people of God gonna do what the Bible prescribes? Get on our face and go, God, move in power again. Show them who our God is. Show Him, Lord. Show Him through me. I'll be a willing vessel. But we're too busy watching Netflix on our phones, worrying about the same thing, not being full of the Holy Spirit. So we're not bold witnesses. I got a whole sermon in here. Not full of fruit. No power. And going, this is it. It's not it but the first step is the solemn assembly. And then the Lord answered, verse 19. So they they must have done this on some level. They must have repented. They must have done the work that Joel told them to do because God says this. And the Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil. And then the key line, and you will be satisfied. So it's not about the grain or the oil or the wine. Those are all signs of blessing. Those are all signs of like even like, like wealth and blessing, even in the physical. But that last line is spiritual. You will be satisfied. And if we were to have a really honest conversation, me and you, I found that most people in the house, the house of God are not satisfied with God. He's not our soul level of satisfaction. And so we search for everything the world looks for. And then we go, it's not working. And I'm like, well, you're not actually going to him. You went to him plus. So I'll go to God as long as my bank account's positive. I'll go to God as long as my kid lives. I'll go to God, but that's not what this is. God himself is the sole satisfying reality that we get to know. He, him, himself, God is a person. And so putting him first in everything, and I've seen this play out again and again and again. Men and women come, I mean, people think I only work on Sundays. Guess what, guys? I work more than one day a week. Um, But all week long, I meet with people. And if we can get them biblically to go, I'm gonna put God first in my finances, you know what you see? The blessing of God. And if I can get them to go, I'm gonna put God first in my marriage, you know what happens? The blessing of God And if you can get a person to go, I want God more than anything, you know what you see over all of their life? The blessing of God. Even if it's hardship and toil and not a lot of money, the blessing of God. And then he says in verse 25, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. I'm going to pay you back. So I'm going to warn you with the locusts, but now I'm going to bring more blessing and goodness. Turn to me is what he says. So if I was to ask, what has sin destroyed in your life? What are, you, what are the locusts actively eating on in your life? Could it be that God wants you to turn today and repent and get on your face and go, God, I want you more than anything? Because after all that, all the solemn assembly and the weeping priests and the calling out of sin and the getting serious about the things of God, it seems like Joel, who's a prophet, and I know a little bit about prophecy, I don't know if he like shifts and like, looks off into the future, which is what a lot of prophets do, that's when you get Joel 2, 2, 2, 28 and 29. So return to me with all your heart, and I will pay the years the locusts of eaten, and then it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. So I'm going to push on us for five more minutes. The pouring out of the spirit of God that follows an act of solemn assembly and kind of repentance produces three things in the church. Should. I already talked about them. Number one, it produces bold witness. Now there's this, I'm not even allowed to talk about it because people get offended. I'll talk about it with me. When's the last time you genuinely told somebody about what God had done in your life? That you sat down and you're like, you have to know the gospel of Jesus. Jesus. Now, here's the thing i don't want you to will that up i don't want you to go well i'm gonna checklist it out this week i'm gonna tell seven people take that pastor gold star bro i like that's not the point the spirit produces in the people of god a boldness that's not natural it's supernatural. you see this in acts they couldn't help themselves They were just like, wherever we go, the Spirit leads us and tells us and prompts us, we have to tell you. That's the language of the Bible. But why do I see so many American Christians going, eh, could it be that we've neglected the very presence of God that Jesus said would come? And then you look at like the fruit the Spirit produces, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Those are all available to the church. But we seem to be sometimes, and these are generalizations, and I'm not even hating because I have days, where the lack of love in the church, for example, the lack of joy in the church, we have no peace. Our patience is about this much. What, no coffee? I'm like, no, not, no, we didn't. Where's the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness? Where's the self-control in the men of God? And it's because we literally, we became desensitized and Joel's diagnosing us that we've lost the presence of God on some level, that we've loved the world and he wants us to return. And then those last thing is is the power of God, which is what everyone likes to focus on. But it actually is bold witness, fruit of the spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer, hear me, if you're a believer, you have the spirit of God in you right now, you do certifiably. And so let's ask an honest question. Is this happening? Do you see those things happening? Witness, fruit, power. Is this happening in our church? Forget about the church, our church. Bigger question, do we want it to happen? And I think the absence of those things, and I'm not even saying that they're fully absent, so don't write me an email. I think God's moving because that's what God does. Even when his people fool around and are stupid, he's still good. The absence of God's blessing or power or movement in a church's life has nothing to do with his willingness. Did you hear me? Nothing to do with his willingness. And why do I say that? I think it has everything to do with our sin. Isaiah 59, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he will not hear. So it has nothing to do with God being unwilling. It has everything with his people being a cheating wife. And he's like, Return to me, and I'll clean you up, and I'll fill you with my spirit, and I'll send you out in power. So, how badly do we want the presence of God in our church, in our nation, in our families? Well, I think as badly as we take, severely as we take sin, and as seriously as we'll repent. I'm going to end with this. I know I keep saying that, but if I keep saying it, I keep, keep talking. I think most of the time when we think about the spirit coming, we think about it in the wrong way. We think it's gonna be crazy manifestations. It can be. But I think it most often, it kind of manifests, shows up itself, retangibles itself in repentance. So if the spirit of God was to be poured out in this room, you would hate the things that you're doing that dishonor God. You just wouldn't want them on you. And you'd want him more than you'd want anything else because you'd see finally for the first time, maybe some of you, how good he is. And there was a revival that took place in the early 20th century, so like 1902 in Korea. And what it started, if you trace back revivals, it usually starts with a very small group of people. About 100 people were in this meeting. There's about a little bit more than that here. And they were at a prayer meeting, and it was in Korea, and the story goes like this, that one of the church leaders, a Mr. Kang, was there, and there was another leader, i got to look at his name, uh, a Mr. Lee, who was visiting and kind of leading the meeting. Mr. Kang stands up, kind of visibly shaking, and goes, Mr. Lee, I've harbored intense bitterness and hatred towards you in my heart, and I'm sorry. And he sits down and he weeps. The whole room's like, what? And would be like, if one of you stood up right now. And we're like, you, I hate you. I'm sorry. And I'll be like, so that's what happened in that. And the room kind of went quiet and hushed. And then Mr. Lee just says in the quiet voice, I forgive you. And what was described as happening is the room all of a sudden filled with a serious sense of repentance and a seriousness about sin and almost like, and then weeping started to break out. And then people would just stand up and confess their sins and then fall on their face and go, God, and I'll read a segment of a quote from that time. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. My own cook tried to make a confession, broke down in the midst of it, and cried to me across the room, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? And then he threw himself on the floor and he wept and he wept and almost screamed in agony. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out in an audible prayer. With the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping. And we would all weep, we would not help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 a.m. with confession and weeping and praying. And it all went back to a hundred believers in a room and one man repenting of his sin. And so I'm gonna invite the band up and we're gonna lean into this. And I don't care if you come up, I don't care if there's weeping, I don't care. I feel like I spoke to you what the Lord wanted you to know, that the word of the Lord has gone out and you have to do something with it. And some of you, you'll ignore it. And so 10 years from now, the locusts eat everything But today the Lord says, I can redeem those places of your life if you'll let me. And so if you're here, there's two different things we're gonna lean to. As the band starts to play, the prayer counselors are actually gonna sit down for a couple songs. I just want it to be us and God, all right? The first stop for us is that repentance part. Some of us need to repent. And you're thinking about it too heavy. Some of you have cheated on God and need to say, I'm sorry. I return to you my lover, my king. And so if you would, would you just get in a place of prayer? But you're so good to come in and free us. You're so good, Lord, to even call us out. So Spirit of the Lord, would you come and produce a godly repentance in this room? Thank you for joining us today. If you need prayer for anything, you can email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com or you can go on our website at www.cobblestonechurch.com and submit it there. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week and God bless.